0: The Psychedelic Revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Welcome back, everyone. I am so honored to have Toby Toby here with us, coming into us live from Colorado. Hi, Toby. Thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure.
1: Thank you for hosting.
0: So uh, Toby, you know, we have all these common friends in the kind of psychedelic space. My friend Daniel had recommended you uh, to interview as a guest and had been the first person to tell me about the work you're doing around integration. So I can't wait to get into it. So I'll just tell you a little bit. Toby Toby is a transpersonal therapist and integration coach. He received an MA in clinical mental health counseling with a concentration in mindfulness-based transpersonal transpersonal counseling from Naropa University. He has over eight years of experience in harm reduction, offering on-site peer support and drug education with the Zendo Project, Nest, Dance Safe, Harmonia, and is the four-year past president of the Psychedelic Club of Denver. Toby believes in the power of a community container and enjoys facilitating support groups. He has conducted over a hundred psychedelic peer integration circles and his therapy internship focused on equine assisted therapy sessions and groups as a transpersonal therapist. He is fascinated by the experiences in life that bring us outside of the mundane. Amazing. I love it. I can't wait to get into it because <clears throat> you offer just, you know, such a range and you've really been entrenched in this world you know, for a while, especially, you know, there in one of the epicenters in the U.S. in Colorado. But Toby, I always love to know, what is your personal story of how you got onto this path of becoming a therapist and integration coach, you know, getting involved in the psychedelic space? Um, And I always love to know, did you used to have some other totally unrelated career at one point before all this? Yeah, um... I guess
1: pre-psychedelics, I was working as a technical support specialist at Boeing Aviation, helping people with uh, navigation problems on aircrafts, both like small, as all the way up to like commercial aviation. So I was doing that for a while, kind of even while I was starting to move into the psychedelic world. Um, And I think that really moving away from that was a result of psychedelics. I'm like, wow, I hate this. yeah, so I think like I dabbled in psychedelics at the start of like my 20s and then came across harm reduction like as a concept. Um I had some friends who were doing volunteer work with an organization called Dance Safe that does like drug education and drug checking in the nightlife sector and I kind of came across that as I was discovering psychedelics and becoming curious and I think I was really lucky that some of my friends at the time were really educated and really cared about harm reduction. So I think that that was kind of like a fateful twist to be in network and in connection with people who were knowledgeable, who would even tell me that I should be testing substances, that I should be, um, not just taking random things from strangers. So I think that that was really profound. And then, um, did a little bit of volunteer work with dance safe and then came across uh, the Zendo project. I want to say in like 2015 and the Zendo project offers psychedelic, it's called it self psychedelic first aid at music festivals and burning man. And, um, I came across them at a festival in California, lightning in a bottle in 2015. And, um, Actually, I feel like my journey really started by having a challenging psychedelic experience. I was at this festival. I had a really challenging psychedelic experience and ended up being a guest at the Zendo Project. And just, like, having that firsthand experience, I think, is huge of, like, being in a really, I don't know, difficult space and just, like, having that kind of flip upside down. Someone from the Zendo came over after, like, um, I don't know, was having... I guess I call it a meltdown or a really tough experience. And they're like, it's okay. I'm here with you. And just like had this experience where my world flipped upside down. Instead of being in like a space of tear and fear, I was like in a space of safety and containment. And then I don't know. I spent my whole night at the Zendo project talking with this wonderful woman and then came back in the morning. I'm like, wow, what happened? Learned more about like how to get involved with the Zendo project. And then from there, um, the next year came back to the same festival and was working as a volunteer. And then since then, I've been working in psychedelic harm reduction spaces um, all over the world. I've done psychedelic harm reduction in Costa Rica at Envision Festival. I've worked at a festival in Canada. So really, I think, like at least for me, the nexus point was like just having that difficult experience, having space held for me, and then... I don't know just seeing the value of that firsthand of having somebody who's trained in de-escalation who's trained in empathy to really like be there to be present and i think that that's at least for me really resonates with my soul like just being able to be that calm grounded compassionate place is really kind of taken everything from there
0: oh so beautiful I love it that you actually went into Zendo as um, someone in need of Zendo, which I did the Zendo training back in 2017 at Burning Man, actually. And um, I was like, wow, I kind of want to know what it's like to just to be someone that has to go in. Um, And had I known about it pre-2017, I probably would have gone in at some point. So that's beautiful. Thank you so much for doing all that volunteer work and especially, um, you know, this harm reduction Realm is so important because, of course, you know, back in my early 20s and teens even, I did things that people gave me that I didn't test and I didn't know what they were and they weren't what they said they were, which is still happening, of course. That hasn't stopped even with today's world that we're in. Um, But let's talk about then how did you – I'm curious how you made this shift into therapy. Uh, This is a lot of clients that I get, a lot of people that I know in this realm – Um, are feeling called to this path of service, but maybe they have a corporate career at a Boeing-type company. You know, were you just like, this is my calling, I know I'm here to help people, and what did it take to just start on that path? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I'm lucky that throughout, like, my years of being a volunteer at the Zendo Project that I've made some really good friends and connections, um... So I think a couple of the people that, like, helped start and run the Zendo Project really inspired me to kind of pursue that path. Like, I think starting off by, like, just holding space for people, I'm like, wow, this really, like, resonates with my soul. I really like this. Like, how do I make this into a career? And I don't know that harm reduction, unfortunately, is a viable career path even eight years into volunteering, doing some paid gigs, I don't know that, like, that's ever gonna pay all my bills, unfortunately. Um, as important as it is, I don't think that, like, there's, like, a mismatch for promoters and people like that wanting to pay for those services versus, like, making that a full-time career. So, really feeling, I think, inspired by, um, Sarah Gale, the founder of the Zendo Project. She went to Naropa, um, and, um, My mentor, Erica Seagal, she runs Nest Harm Reduction. I think those two really were like a big inspiration for me. Where I'm like, wow, okay, so how do I do this more? How do I do more of this? Like, I love this. How do I do more of this? And I think at least for me at a certain point, the answer was that I want to get a master's degree, which is like something that's really surprising for me. Like, I'm not classically a great student. Like, it took me seven years to get through my undergrad. Like, and then somehow finding myself in a master's program and like doing really well at a master's program, I think like really was like just finding my passion and chasing it and seeing how far I could chase it really like is what I think led me to Naropa, to this therapy path, to hopefully someday be doing psychedelic therapy. I still feel like there's a lot of that path for me before I'm like going to be actually doing the thing that I'm passionate about.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing. And, um, you know, I love that you really just found, found this passion, asked how can I? How can I get paid to do this? Um, I. That's actually kind of similar to my own path, where I didn't know there was even such a thing as a coach. I was just helping people, and then people said, "You know, you should do this for a career." And so I, I do talk to my clients a lot about that, like where is that place in your heart that's just pulling you, and get curious, you know, start to explore it. Um, but let's go into, you know, what what you then did, and also uh, how. Psychedelic experiences since that one in the Zendo project um, back in 2015, how did they play a part in your, you know, path to becoming a therapist and your path ever since? You know, you were still doing harm reduction, but were you going into the psychedelic space on a fairly regular basis and having insights and guidance? Like, did the psychedelic path inform this path of, like, I want to help people, even if it's in a non-psychedelic space like therapy? Um, Mm -hmm. did the psychedelic experiences guide you in some way?
1: Yeah, I think that like, at least for me, it's always kind of been a way, I don't know, I've always wanted to like chase whatever feels resonant for me. So I think that like, after I um, started volunteering with the Zendo project, I remember um, the first event that I was working with them, I had a psychedelic experience that was really powerful where I felt like this I don't know, sense of connection and purpose where I'm like, wow, this work is really amazing. And I think that like I've had that experience a couple times where I just feel like just such alignment in like a psychedelic space with like the work, with like being that person who can help people on sometimes like the t- toughest night of their life. I think that that really feels resonant to me. And then I think that that feels similar to like the therapy path for me just like how can i help people going through like some real heavy shit like how can we like be together two people in a room and how can i like offer you some help on your path so i think for me um i don't know for me like the more i get into psychedelics the less psychedelics i take which i think is really ironic um for me i think a lot of like the psychedelic takeaway is actually like the power of community so Um, The first year that I was volunteering with the Zendo Project, um, a friend of mine who works for DanceSafe, she connected me with some people um, in Denver who were trying to start a psychedelic club. So me and a couple people pretty soon after that first time that I was working with Zendo Project started the psychedelic club of Denver. And we ended up growing from like, I want to say there were seven of us meeting in the back of a dive bar in July of 2016 all the way to starting a decriminalization campaign in 2019. So, like, I think, like, for me at least, one of the real takeaways from psychedelics is just, like, the power of community, the power of, like, finding people who are like-minded. I think, like, for me, that's a huge part of the psychedelic experience is just, like, being in connection and community with, like, people who are also passionate or curious about psychedelics has been, like, a huge part of my journey.
0: Ah, thanks for sharing and i agree and we'll talk about that in a minute cuz that's something i've talked about on this podcast a lot with um with people around this idea of relational healing and healing in community and of course this is a part of this like pandemic in our world right now where so many people feel disconnected and isolated and lonely even though we're technically more connected than ever and um you know really turning to psychedelics to find this this within them when it's actually like it's not just the psychedelic. It's like we can actually create this in our day to day. But I want to hear a little bit first about becoming also an integration coach. There's a lot of listeners who really want to go on this path. Maybe they've been on the psychedelic path for a long time and they're ready to be of service, but maybe they don't have a master's in therapy or maybe they actually actually haven't studied anything Um, In particular, you know, these integration coach training programs have only been out a few years now. Um, But what do you say to someone, you know, who wants to start up, let's say, an integration business or be of service in this way? You know, do you have any tips? And also, what are the realities? Like I used to say a lot of people who work with psychedelics don't think they even need integration or they don't even know that word. You know, at least a few years ago, they didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love that there's like this continuing discussion on the importance of integration. I think that that's huge. I think integration is really where the magic happens. And I don't know, I just kind of, I guess, want to say that I stumbled into this kind of work. Like, I originally was working with therapists for the Psychedelic Club of Denver who were like running our integration circles. And I was just more of like a community organizer kind of side of the things. And then I want to say two different times, our group of therapists, this is back in like 2016 when it was much less acceptable, was like, wow, I don't think I can keep running this because I'm worried about liability for my license. So like this happened not once, but twice. I think we probably went through, I want to say three different therapists. And um, so for me at least, like I spent a lot of time watching other people run this space before I ever stepped into like running in an integration circle and then after a while I'm like wow this is a really important offering like offering people a place to process i think is huge and yeah so i guess i don't know like that my experience is necessarily the way that everyone else should um i guess i think there's like two different aspects to like the integration i think there's like this one on one integration which i think is more of like the classic integration coaching Um, And then I think that there's, like, peer integration coaching, which is kind of where my organization, Altered States, does a lot of hard work, is in, like, an integration circle where, um, at least in that seat, I don't think that you have to be a therapist. I don't think you have to be a coach. Like, it's peer integration circles. So I think that, like, as long as you're passionate about psychedelics, I think that that's a great place to start um, your journey. and. I don't know. I think that for me, at least, for people who want to like move into like peer integration coaching, I'd recommend people to attend a lot of different integration circles. Like everyone has kind of a different style. Like the style that we run our integration circles is a little bit different than like Daniel from Tam Integration, and is different than like a lot of like the psychedelic clubs integration circles. So I guess people that are passionate about peer integration should attend a lot of integration circles, see how it's done, see what they like, see what they don't like. Um, Yeah, I think that um, at least for like the peer, the group integration circles, I think um, there's lots of places to get these skills. I think that like therapy skills are interpersonal skills. So I think like those help like practicing reflective listening, practicing paraphrasing, stuff like that but I think that there's also other places to get these much cheaper than going through a master's program. I don't know that like I would recommend that to anyone after my own experiences of going through a master's program. Um, Yeah. So I think that like finding people that you resonate with that are doing the work in the space. I think a lot of people in this space are moving towards having trainings. I know that Daniel's about to launch a year long integration coach program. Um, We have an eight-week program called Start to Finish Integration Circle that really focuses on um, peer integration, like the style that we're doing, and then offers our students an opportunity to co-lead one of our integration circles. And I think there's also lots of really great coaching programs out there that are a great place to start. Um, I can't speak for a lot of them, but I know that Lumia is doing a really great coaching program, not specifically focused on psychedelics, but I think a lot of these skills can carry over to psychedelics, like, I think coaching's coaching.
0: Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing that. And also, um, you know, just for listeners that don't know, what is a peer integration circle versus, um, you know, like a one led by a head coach or a, a therapist?
1: Yeah, so I guess on my approach, I think that being a peer means that I'm walking away from being... The person who has the answers I'm walking away from maybe being therapist Toby and I'm coming into the room as passionate about psychedelics therapy Toby like that person who's really passionate about psychedelics and wants to hear everyone's stories so my role in that space I think is really about creating this container like Going over guidelines, uh, facilitating conversations, seeing if people are open for reflections, moderating like that as we're going through, making sure that somebody doesn't monopolize all of the time, and then I think at least in the, my approach, there's these like harm reduction hat moments where somebody says something outrageous, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know that that's advised. I'm really glad that that worked out for you and I don't know that I would advise anyone else try that and really like pointing people towards resources. Um, I think it's really similar to NA or AA which I think is like probably the most common peer support group that people are probably familiar with like I don't know you're not an expert whoever's like facilitating the meeting is there because they're passionate about creating that space but they're also not like acting as the expert like they are there to create connection and community.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, You know, it's been interesting being in this world for a few years now. And, you know, many years ago, the word integration kind of, I mean, it existed, of course, but it wasn't really widely discussed. And, you know, I I helped some of the early integration coaches build their business. And, you know, years ago, it was like no one was even seeking integration. Um, I'm curious, you know, how are people, first of all, are people still, are, are they going to your integration circles? And then have you seen an increase? Like, is it really true that people want and seek integration support, especially as obviously psychedelics are growing rapidly all over the place? I mean, are you got, are you seeing an increase? And have you seen this trend that's just ticking upward, you know, month after month? Yeah, I don't know that I would say it's like a month after month, like exponential growth. I think
1: that um, we at least had a large growth during the pandemic, like most of our offerings are virtual. So I think that that was really helpful in terms of like connecting with people like we had... um, God, I want to say she was 92. We had a 92-year-old lady um, who had tried psychedelics for the first time, had literally downloaded Zoom to attend an integration circle that we were hosting. So stuff like that, I think, is really cool. Just like um, having like the option for people to connect has been really cool, and like watching who um, joins these spaces is really interesting. I'm always like surprised because it seems like lots of people are interested and passionate about psychedelics people that I would never have guessed like people a lot of like our community comes from Texas I'm like wow I would never have guessed that you would be into psychedelics just based on your appearance and I think for me that's like been a huge growing point is like that I think that psychedelics have built lots of people for lots of different reasons
0: (laughs) oh that's incredible I love it the 92 year old and yeah um you know, it's been interesting to watch this change. And thankfully, there's more and more conversations and it's becoming part of hopefully integrated into the psychedelic space. Like to me, it's just kind of an, a necessary. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Right. So let's talk about, um, you know, what you've been seeing in this space. You know, you're you're there in uh, the Denver area or the Colorado in Colorado, and you've been part of this for a long time I'm assuming were you and you said you were involved in the decriminalization movement and then now it's been legal since prop 122 passed in November um you know I'm curious as someone who lives there has it has it changed the vibe already and do you think this is all going in the right direction overall like and do you have any concerns I'm curious
1: yeah um I don't know I feel like Boulder, especially, has kind of always been a little psychedelic. So I don't know that I can say that it's, like, more psychedelic, but I think, um, at least in the last year or so, people have been way more out about it. Like, I go to the coffee shop to do some work, and I hear people in the corner talking about psychedelics, which makes me really happy, because I don't know that that would have happened in 2014, 2015, when I was first, like, getting into this world, um... But yeah, I it's been like really interesting just kind of watching the growth of it. Like I was involved in the 2019 decriminalization campaign in Denver and then the next year a group of us went out to Washington, D.C. and worked on their campaign in the middle of COVID. And um I really enjoy and appreciate like just talking to people on the street about psychedelics. I think there's lots of interesting conversations. And a lot of the time when you're like canvassing, trying to like, get people to sign the petition it's like hmm what angle do I go for to talk about psychedelics or decriminalization like talking to middle-aged women I usually I think would hit more on like the um, prison reform angle versus like talking to somebody who looks like they're in college and, and maybe you would start with hey do you like psychedelics As like my leading question to try to like spark conversations so um, yeah and it's been really interesting just kind of watching things unfold and um yeah it's wild in terms of like the political action that went into actually passing a statewide initiative like it's not easy to pass a statewide initiative requires I don't know how many thousands of people's effort I don't know how many millions of dollars but like it's not easy and It's been kind of interesting watching the divide in Colorado, at least, between people who are for, like, and maybe are a little bit past this, but originally when, like, the prop was first coming up, there's people who were for it, and then there's people who were against it because they're, like, worried about the corporadelic, like, big-money psychedelic interest coming in. And I think we're still watching that play out in Denver, at least in Colorado, at least Like, we passed Prop 122, but then it's been going through committees. They've been adding amendments. They've been trying to add, like, legal limits. So it's really interesting watching maybe, like, people vote for something and then watching the democratic process, like, take steps back has been really disheartening for me, where, like, the people voted on one thing and then it really seems to be veering more towards, like, corporate interests and less away from maybe like community healing, which is disappointing for me to watch happen in real time.
0: Yeah, And I'm sitting here silent because this is my my biggest concern. And I'm not even located there. But it's, you know, it's going to affect the whole country and potentially the whole world. um, Because, you know, Colorado is one of the leaders in this this you know, le- new legalization. Um, but yeah, let's let's get into that a little bit, too. and i I won't grill you on what's happening in Colorado because I know it's changes every day and there's so much going on. But um, you know, i'm I'm curious, you know, you and the people you work with and the people you're connected to in the community there, is there a concern about that corporate interest? Um because, you know, before the before the interview, we I mentioned the word regulation, and it's like, well, yeah, things have to be regulated on some level. Um, I don't know. I, part of me dreams of a world with everything unregulated, but that's not reality, not with the way humans act. But, you know, what are the concerns? And do you think there's a chance of us trying to get this right somehow? Um, you know, so it doesn't end up just like another big pharmaceutical company that takes over and now we can't even access it unless you have thousands of dollars to pay for a patented psilocybin strain that you can only buy with a prescription from someone that costs $2,000 to go to and, you know, has a two-year waiting list. Is this, because there's, I hear this a lot um, and you can probably tell my voice, it concerns me a little bit too. Um, Is this a concern with a lot of people out there and are we all just overreacting? Yeah, I think it's a concern. I don't know if we're
1: overreacting. I think like... I don't know. This is one of the reasons I'm such a big proponent of decriminalization. I think that decriminalization, at least the way that I think it works best, allows people to grow, gift, and gather psychedelics. So I can give you, my friend, a handful of mushrooms, and as long as we're not paying money, no laws have been broken. So I think that at least for me, I'm a real big proponent of that kind of at a baseline. We have like this decriminalization where you can grow, you can gift it and you can grab it from nature. Like, I don't know, kind of how it works with roses, right? You walk out, you pick some roses, you give them to your mom. Like nobody's going to get arrested for that. Um, But then I do think that there is a necessity for like some kind of legalization. I think that um, increasingly there's like this demand for, therapeutic psychedelics or um, being able to take psychedelics in um, different kind of medical settings. And I think that that's really important. I think that I also believe in that. But I think that if like we have a mismatch where there's legal psychedelics, as in like corporations can sell you a Script, or you can pay a psychedelic therapist a lot of money to get ketamine, but you're not able to go just do that in community, then I think we have like a problem. And I think that that's kind of the tension that we see in Colorado right now is the tension between community facilitated healing and um like going through a clinic or something of that model. So I think that there's this real big tension, and we're still watching it play out in Colorado, watching it play out in Oregon. And I think that these are really important places to watch this happen because, like, I don't know. I think that it should always be okay for a group of friends to go camping and have a psychedelic experience, hopefully for their benefit. Like, I think that that should always be something that's allowed. I think that... I don't know. There's like so many things that are wrong if only people who have money can get psychedelics or if you need insurance to pay for a $5,000 or $3,000 psychedelic treatment then like we're gatekeeping in like a really awful monetary based way.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, this is actually one of my concerns too is around community healing, um ceremonial practices, kind of, you know, ancient ways uh, of gathering and also working with medicines, kind of you know on some level how we choose Uh and the some of them my friends there that I've talked to that's that's their concern because that's actually the space that they've been holding for a long time as in this kind of traditional you know we could say indigenous but it's not always indigenous but it stems from you know indigenous cultures that have been walking this this kind of ceremonial path for you know millennia and you know, there's a concern about how this regulation might affect that um but you've mentioned community a few times, and I've actually, this has come up so much on other interviews, and it's actually, you know, it's a big passion of mine as well. Do you, you know, how do you feel about community as it's connected to the psychedelic space or the healing space in general? And do you think um, there's some level of community, healing in relation, healing in community is one of the answers to maybe the accessibility issue, maybe to um, just actually having bigger results, more growth. Um, You know, what are your thoughts around community versus like just doing one-on-one or even solo work?
1: Yeah. So I've been like involved in psychedelic community through like the Psychedelic Club of Denver for a while. And like, not in terms of like maybe doing community healing, but in terms of creating a space for people to come talk about these experiences, creating a space for education to occur. And I think that that's a really huge component, at least for me, like of getting to connect with other people who are engaging with psychedelics maybe differently or just have different viewpoints than I do. So I think that that's like a huge part of my psychedelic experience is the people that I have met and connected with as a result of our mutual passion about psychedelics. And I don't know. I think that, um, in terms of like community healing with psychedelics, I think that it does offer an interesting way to maybe make sure that um, people's financial needs are met, right? Like um, group healing sessions, I think can have their own pitfalls and their own down sides. But um, it is a way to make sure that like a psychedelic therapist or a shaman or whatever is able to like charge a fair price and still be able to, survive out there and like i don't know i'm a big proponent of people doing this work getting paid a living wage i've even um, recently been trying to trend towards the terminology like thriving wage i think everyone doing work in psychedelics should be paid a thriving wage like not just a wage that survives but something that lets us chase our dreams and go on vacation and pay for healthcare. like that'd be really cool
0: yeah, I want to I want to talk about that a little more actually because um I interviewed uh someone a few weeks ago and we we spoke a lot about this and it's it's kind of been I mean it's generally an issue in our entire planet and every industry it seems like um where there's just a lot of inequality but in the psychedelic space it's been very interesting to navigate so many viewpoints um meaning yeah, You know, someone just found out how much uh, legal psychedelic therapy will be in Oregon and a whole bunch of people are up in arms. But there's so many factors behind it and there's so much to it. And there's also, um, you know, rules and regulations. And then there's things like rent, you know, and then there's time. And, um, you know, even as a therapist or an integration coach, you know, how do you find that balance to find a thriving wage, you know, or a thriving income that really supports you, but also serve the needs of maybe all all people. Um, because again, even like you mentioned, ketamine therapy. Ketamine therapy, I mean, so far I haven't found it to be, um, like I haven't found anybody cheap unless they're doing ketamine circles. Meaning, I don't know, the minimum I found was like $1,400, but maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places. But, you know, how do we serve people that might be in need they can't afford it and also be thriving. Like how have you found this balance and how do you suggest others find that balance in their practice, and their work? Oh man, I don't, I don't know <laughs> that I have found that balance. I think that
1: that's an ongoing thing for me and my work in this space. Like at least for how I got my jumpstart in psychedelics, a lot of it was volunteering for free, like I don't want to think of how many hours, hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours that I've volunteered maps over the years, like for free. And um, like, I don't know. So at least for how I approach um, accessibility while trying to still like meet that thriving, a lot of like our offerings at Altered States Integration are on a sliding scale, like our integration circles, we run two or three a month. And those are anywhere from zero to $19. Like, what can you pay like i don't know i don't want at least with my work where i'm at right now to have like money be a barrier but i also don't know that i would say that i'm in like a thriving state so maybe i'm wrong or maybe i'm misguided or maybe i don't know like i think that like there's lots of people doing work in this space and i think um it seems like lots of people are grappling with this question how do i transmute the value I'm providing individuals community um into a way that like provides a thriving wage And I think the easiest answer is to sell drugs but like at least for me who's trying to like stay on the legal side of things like that's not the answer and I I don't know I think it's like a question that we're going to have to kind of figure out because I don't know like um Sitting down, like, these numbers that people throw out for, like, psychedelic therapy seems insane. But then I think, I guess I want to challenge everyone to kind of price it out from there. Like, if you're a therapist who makes $150 an hour is doing an eight-hour session, like... That's a thousand bucks right there. That doesn't include any preparation. that doesn't include any integration that doesn't include any cost of the medicine that doesn't include any trainings like I just spent a hundred thousand dollars on a master's degree. So like at some point in time, I'd like to pay that off. So I think that there's like lots of costs visible and hidden that go into providing these services. And I think that there has to be a better way than charging fourteen hundred dollars for a ketamine session, which costs pennies on the dollar to actually like make ketamine the drug.
0: It's funny because I I just had this discussion when when people were up in arms over, you know, psilocybin therapy. And I'm like, you know, it's hours, it's hours and hours and hours. And then there's, you know, setting up the space and the preparation if something, you know, maybe doesn't go as planned. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've had psychedelic journeys that I thought were going to be three hours and they turn into six, you know, it happens all the time. So. Um, there is a reality, and I agree, it's it's kind of this weird place where, you know, everybody's in sticker shock, including me, you know, including me, who's like, oh, I totally believe everybody should thrive, um, and how do we make this affordable and accessible? Um, and then, you know, when we get into, like, underground facilitators, it's kind of been the same thing. I I've actually surveyed people in my, I have this free Facebook group, and I tried to survey people a few months ago saying... How much do you pay, you know, for underground, whatever it is, work? And it runs from, you know, fifty dollars down in Peru, of course, to up to, you know, a few thousand dollars for a one on one. And I've seen people up to like eight to ten thousand dollars for, you know, some kind of like fancy retreat in Costa Rica, along with coaching and integration. Um, so I've seen everything at this point, and it's like, well, I mean, How do we know what's right or wrong? How do we make this affordable? Maybe create scales um, or, you know, like maybe serve some clients at that $10,000 range and then some at the $200 range. I don't know. Um, But it's something interesting to talk about. And we'll see what happens. I'm hoping maybe with supply and demand or maybe with decriminalization or legalization, maybe somehow it does bring prices down as the supply grows. I don't know. I'm not. I'm actually...
1: Yeah, I think decriminalization does bring, at least brings the supply up. But then I think, I don't know, like, we get into these questions of like, how do you vet somebody to hold space for you? And like, there are people out there that have more experience holding space than others. Like, someone who's been working in the underground for 10 years should probably charge more than somebody who had their first mushroom trip last week, and they're like, oh yeah, now I'm going to hold space for you, which I feel like I see a lot, where somebody's like, I just did psychedelics for the first time last year, and now I'm a psychedelic whatever, and I'm like, okay, how many trips have you even had? Like, I don't know. I think that these are, like, really big questions, and I don't claim to have an answer to them, and I really hope it ends up okay, and I feel like the more time I spend in psychedelics, maybe the more pessimistic I become, like... I don't know. I don't know the answer. That's
0: like me. I'm like really trying to stay positive because I do see this like this larger vision that I have for the world. I I really believe there's some goodness in all this. And it's so easy to get pessimistic because I know I've I've met people like this that are speaking on panels at big psychedelic conferences that just started microdosing three years ago. And that was that's the extent of their psychedelic work. And, you know, I'm trying to take this, like, who's to say what's right or wrong? How do I know? You know, who's whatever. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting world, but we'll see. Um, you know, I have some questions for you, actually, on a personal level about your work with equine therapy. I've only interviewed okay. one other person on this podcast who is a former client of mine who also um, was doing kind of psychedelic integration, equine therapy work. It was a huge part of her own path. Um. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about this? You, you know, you did your thesis on this, yes, and then... Yeah, and I've been doing it for the past oh, two years or so. Okay. Yeah, I'm curious to, like, learn a little bit more about it. What, I mean, how do you explain equine yeah. therapy to someone, you know, maybe like me who's never done it, even though I know... Little... Yeah, Um. so at least the kind of, like, approach that I use to equine therapy
1: treats, like, the horse as a partner in therapy. So they're not there to, like... I don't know, make metaphors about, they're not there to maybe have like as a tool, but they really are there as a third body in therapy, which I think is really can change the game. Um, I guess let me start by telling a couple facts about horses that I think lend them to be good therapy partners. Um, so horses are prey animals, which means they're really highly sensitive. So, um, something that I've discovered with horses and working with them is that I think that they know more about my mental physical state than I, Then it appears. Like I wouldn't be surprised if like the horses are sensitive enough to know what my heart rate is. And, um, they really love congruence, I think. So congruence is where we, our inner world and our outer world match up. So, Um, it seems like that's when the magic happens to me is when my client's able to maybe name what's going on inside and then like suddenly the horse is open for connection, the horse is available. Um, one time with a client, we were talking about how she needed grounding and the horse came running over out of nowhere and like throws itself on the ground and starts rolling in the dirt. And she had like this aha moment where she's like, oh, okay. So that's how simple grounding can be. Um, But yeah, so I think that they're really like highly sensitive beings. They are relational beings. Like by being in a herd, they have to rely on each other to survive. So I think that they really are tuned in. And then um, they also have a giant heart. Their heart's like 10 times bigger than ours, which means just in terms of like a nervous system co-regulation, when we spend time with horses, um, I think it's just really regulating for our nervous system And I think lots of our clients, at least in my experience, come in talking about having experience with horses when they're younger. A lot of clients just like walking onto our ranch where we work, just the smell of the ranch feels like reminiscent of childhood. Um, Yeah, I guess the last thing that makes horses really great therapy partners is that they don't really have a frontal lobe. So they... They have one. It's much, much smaller than us, but the frontal lobe's responsible for planning and future, both future-focused thinking. So a lot of the time when we're sharing space with horses, we're really in the present moment. They kind of force us to be in the present moment because that's how they exist all the time.
0: Oh. I love. Yeah, that's that's totally me. Um, You know, I rode horses like at camp as a kid, but that smell alone just you know makes me like melt super safe feeling probably because it was an escape from my actual home as a kid um but i'm curious you know to learn more about logistically how do you how do you do this is it that people come to you specifically for equine therapy or you work with already existing clients and then you mentioned a ranch like how does this how does this happen
1: yeah so at least for me i've been working with a nonprofit out of boulder for the last two years and they do therapy groups as well as like individual therapy. So I facilitated, I don't know, probably 15-ish therapy groups. Um, we had like a ton of different populations. Like we worked with veterans. I worked with women with breast cancer. I worked with queer teens. I worked with Latino youth, um, just to name a few. In addition, like my individual clients. So at least for like my work, a lot of my clients were coming to me because they were interested in the relational aspect because maybe they had experience with horses or maybe they were just kind of drawn to trying something different. Some of my clients would come in because they would tried all different kinds of therapy and nothing worked and their daughter loved animals. So then she was out at our ranch and we were doing therapy. And yeah, I think it's, an. Exp- I'd call it like experiential therapy. So I think that at least for me on my journey to be a psychedelic therapist, this has been like great training. Like I'm working with my clients and we're having an experience and then we're processing that experience. So it's not just like talk based therapy. I think talk therapy a lot of the time can struggle to get to the root of trauma. Like trauma lives in our bodies. When we experience trauma, we lose the ability to talk. So talking about trauma isn't always the most effective way, but like, having like a safe relationship to explore trauma. I think a lot of the time has been like huge watching my clients kind of have these aha moments or just being able to be safe in connection
0: has been like. Oh my God, I want to do this. That sounds incredible. Um, I'm curious, you know, if, if people maybe turn to this because maybe they've been doing talk therapy a long time and nothing's really changing. And I, I personally agree. Like I believe in somatic, you know, body centered uh, therapies that have at least been for me, my biggest healing with, along with the medicine work, you know, as the integration, um, like to me, you don't really get the good results, you know, results in quotes from the psychedelics without doing some form of like a somatic or experiential therapy. But, you know, is this like this equine therapy? Would you say it's pretty, I hate using these words, (laughs) but like effective, you know, like, have you seen these kind of wow, people have big breakthroughs or they were able to access a certain place that they haven't gone to? Like, I'm, I'm curious.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it's been highly effective, but I think it's hard for me to know for sure how effective it is because I don't like have this comparison point of like seeing the exact same client in like a traditional talk-based therapy office. But for a lot of my clients, it's been really transformative and just kind of like offered them a way to heal. I think a lot of us have like relational attachment wounds and being able to be in a relationship that feels safe um, is huge. And it's really, I don't know, cool or interesting watching like some of my younger clients. My youngest clients were a pair of six-year-old siblings. And like, I don't know that like they weren't capable, like their brain wasn't developed in a way that would have lended it to like, talking about their story so like really just offering them this experience i think has been huge and then like after working with them for six seven months like to finally have like built this relationship with us and the horses to a place where they're like ready to like ride the horses is like oh like so cool to me that like they were able to like have this experience Um, with a horse that they've like been lurking on building a relationship with for months and like just watching this little six-year-old on top of a giant Clydesdale horse like my heart melts.
0: Now I'm like I'm coming to Boulder for a couple days. (laughs) Maybe I should have made it a longer trip because it's funny I've been wanting to try this um, and I live near places where there's horses but I don't know if anyone's an actual therapist doing it you know Um, there was someone doing mindfulness based work I think meditating with the horses that kind of thing um but you know maybe we'll see i love this so toby i want to talk i want you to have an opportunity to tell the audience you know about what you have upcoming you know what your plan is for the work and the the i mean you're involved in so much the work you have coming up maybe in the next year great so really excited about that and let's see what else do we have upcoming um
1: so we're about to launch uh I talked about this a little bit earlier we call it our start to finish psychedelic integration circle workshop so this is like an eight week group coaching course that we put together that really teaches people how to do our approach to um integration so um we i guess i want to call it like a wizard of Oz moment. we peel back the curtain and show you how we do our things so we offer our students um white papers and everything that we use to run our stuff and then um, over eight weeks, it's kind of designed to move you towards being ready to do this work. And then it kind of culminates with a co-leading opportunity. So we let our students um, co-lead one of our integration circles live and then get feedback afterwards. is kind of like the wrap up. So um, yeah, I don't know when this is going to come out, um, but um, we run that two to three
0: times a Great. year. Great. And then what about you? You know, are you open to new clients? Do you do online? Are you only in person out in Colorado? Yeah. So I'm really
1: in a state of transition right now. So I've been working at the equine therapy place for the past two years. And then I'm kind of moving off onto my own as a therapist, which is exciting. Um, So kind of trying to figure that out. Like I was working on that right before I got on this call, actually. But like, Putting together the pieces to do private practice is something that I'm working on right now. And then I personally would love to move more towards um, figuring out the pieces to do psychedelic therapy. And I feel like it's kind of something that's going to come with time. Like Colorado's still figuring out their stuff. Like they don't quite know how it's going to look for people to be doing legal psychedelic therapy.
0: Isn't that funny? I I had someone call me up a few months ago saying... Should I just move to Colorado? I'm like, they just voted it, like, in a, like a month ago. <laughs> like, things don't move that fast, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, we're just watching Oregon starting. Just starting. Like, what is that, three years later? Three years. Yeah, so, I don't know. I think, at least for me, I'm going to try to be the best psychotherapist possible. I think that, like, that's something a lot of people forget, is that psychedelic therapy is still therapy. And, like, if you're approaching from that viewpoint, you really should I don't know, hone your therapy skills as much as possible. So that's something that I'm going to be working on. And then I think just continuing to host like our psychedelic integration circles. We run a themed circle every month on a different topic. Like last month we talked about psychedelic ego death. This month we're talking about recreational psychedelics. In June, we're going to be talking about integrating the queer psychedelic experience. So we run one of those a month as well as a couple, just more general purpose psychedelic integration.
0: Fun. I'm, I'm sad that I missed the ego death one. And that's it. I love that's like one of my favorite subjects. Yeah. and I mean, it's wild just like talking to people about
1: ego death, listening to different people's experiences and I don't know. It's always interesting when we host these theme circles because I say two-thirds of the people are really passionate about the topic and then one-third are curious, So, which always creates good discourse where people are like, how do I know that I'm having a psychedelic ego death? And, like, just, and then I feel like we usually or sometimes will spin off into tangential stuff. It feels to me like psychedelics are related to philosophy and consciousness and spirituality and Buddhism. So I feel like all these like... Topics that I'm like tangentially related to somehow always get pulled in or often get pulled into this discussion about psychedelics. We're suddenly talking about parts-based work in uh integration circle. I'm like, oh man, you guys are the coolest. That's so
0: fun. Oh, these these sound like great integration circles. And when you guys are ready to launch the the you know eight-week training, let me know. I'll share it with my clients, my community. Just because, you know, over the years, of course, my clients are like, I'm starting an integration circle. And it's, you know, it's nice to know that there's other models and there's other ways. And, you know, how do you stand out and just not have the generic integration circle, but make it the integration circle that people want to go to Um, and really like the community that aligns with who you are as a a practitioner or a coach or a healer? Yeah. And I mean, I guess the biggest tip
1: I can give anyone who's passionate about doing this kind of work is to just show up and start trying to do the thing. I think that that's the biggest lesson I've learned, like building a psychedelic community is we met for a while, every Monday night for years and starting off, there'd maybe be five people in the room. And then over time, like it grows, but I think like even now I have to like tell myself these things take time. Like it takes time to build a community and at its heart, I think that that's what altered states integration is. It's the community for people who are passionate about psychedelic integration who are passionate about psychedelic education mm. and harm reduction so like I think if you build it they will come is like the truest thing that I've ever heard but I think there should be like an addendum if you build it they will come <laughs> exactly
0: well Toby it was so great to meet you you know we'll we'll also share your um your event at psychedelic science I plan to be there I hope I didn't make other plans that night but I doubt it because <laughs> I, th- I only have one other thing I'm going to But this is awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And most of all, thank you so much for this important work you're doing in the world. You know, I can't wait to meet you out in Colorado. I'm sure we'll meet somehow, you know, at your event, maybe. Hopefully we'll get time to connect. And thank you so much. And we'll have all your links right here in the show notes so everybody can be in touch with you.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much, Beth. This has been such a fun chat.
0: I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times.